Section 16 of Holidays at Roselands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. Holidays at Roselands by Martha Finley. Chapter 12, Part 1. I drink so deep of grief that he must only think, not dare to speak, that would express my woe. Small rivers murmur. Deep gulfs, silent flow. Marston Safanicia. It was no want of love for his child that had kept Mr. Dinsmore from at once obeying Adelaide's summons. He had left the place where she supposed him to be, and thus it happened that her letters did not reach him nearly so soon as she had expected. But when at length they were put into his hands, and he read of Elsie's entreaty that he would come to her, and saw by the date how long she had been ill, his distress and alarm were most excessive, and within an hour he had set out on his return, travelling night and day with the greatest possible dispatch. Strangers wondered at the young, fine-looking man, who seemed in such desperate haste to reach the end of his journey, sat half the time with his watch in his hand, and looked so despairingly wretched whenever the train stopped for a moment. Elsie was indeed, as Adelaide had said, the very idol of his heart, and at times he suffered but little less than she did. But his will was stronger even than his love, and he had fondly hoped that this separation from him would produce the change in her which he so much desired, and had thus far persuaded himself that he was only using the legitimate authority of a parent, and therefore acting quite right, and in fact with the truest kindness, because, as he reasoned, she would be happier all her life if once relieved from the supposed necessity of conforming to rules so strict and unbending. But suddenly his eyes seemed to have been opened to see his conduct in a new light, and he called himself a brute, a monster, a cruel persecutor, and longed to annihilate time and space, that he might clasp his child in his arms, tell her how dearly he loved her, and assure her that never again would he require her to do aught against her conscience. Again and again he took out his sister's letters, and read and re-read them, vainly trying to assure himself that there was no danger, that she could not be so very ill. She is so young, he said to himself, and has always been healthy. It cannot be that she will die. He started and shuddered at the word. Oh, no, it is impossible, he mentally exclaimed. God is too merciful to send me so terrible an affliction. He had not received Adelaide's last, and was therefore quite unprepared to find his child so near the borders of the grave. It was early on the morning of the day after her fearful relapse that a carriage drove rapidly up the avenue, and Horace Dinsmore looked from its window, half expecting to see again the little graceful figure that had been wont to stand upon the steps of the portico, ready to greet his arrival with such outgushings of joy and love. But, pshaw, he exclaimed to himself, of course she is not yet able to leave her room, but my return will soon set her up again. The darling! My poor little pet, he added, with a sigh, as memory brought her vividly before him as he had last seen her, and recalled her sorrowful, pleading looks and words. My poor darling, you shall have all the love and caresses now that your heart can desire. And he sprang out, glancing up at the windows above, to see if she were not looking down at him. But she was not to be seen, 
Yet it did not strike him as strange that all the shutters were closed, since it was the east side of the house, and a warm summer sun was shining full upon them. A servant met him at the door, looking grave and sad. But Mr. Dinsmore waited not to ask any questions, and merely giving the man a nod, sprang up the stairs, and hurried to his daughter's room, all dusty and travel-stained as he was. He heard her laugh as he reached the door. Ah, she must be a great deal better. She will soon be quite well again, now that I have come, he murmured to himself, with a smile as he pushed it open. But alas, what a sight met his eye! The doctor, Mrs. Travilla, Adelaide, and Chloe, all grouped about the bed, where lay his little daughter, tossing about and raving in the wildest delirium, now shrieking with fear, now laughing an unnatural, hysterical laugh, and so changed that no one could have recognized her, the little face so thin, the beautiful hair of which she had been so proud all gone, the eyes sunken deep in her head, and their soft light changed to the glare of insanity. Could it be Elsie, his own beautiful little Elsie? He could scarcely believe it, and a sickening feeling of horror and remorse crept over him. No one seemed aware of his entrance, for all eyes were fixed upon the little sufferer. But as he drew near the bed, with a heart too full for speech, Elsie's eye fell upon him, and with a wild shriek of mortal terror she clung to her aunt, crying out, "'Oh, save me, save me! He's coming to take me away to the Inquisition! Go away, go away!' And she looked at him with a countenance so full of fear and horror that the doctor hastily took him by the arm to lead him away. But Mr. Dinsmore resisted. "'Elsie, my daughter, it is I, your own father, who loves you dearly,' he said in tones of the keenest anguish, as he bent over her and tried to take her hand. But she snatched it away, and clung to her aunt again, hiding her face and shuddering with fear. Mr. Dinsmore groaned aloud, and no longer resisted the physician's efforts to lead him from the room. "'It is the delirium of fever,' Dr. Barton said, in answer to the father's agonized look of inquiry. "'She will recover her reason, if she lives.' The last words were added in a lower, quicker tone. Mr. Dinsmore covered his face, and uttered a groan of agony. "'Doctor, is there no hope?' he asked in a hoarse whisper. "'Do you wish me to tell you precisely what I think?' asked the physician. "'I do, I do. Let me know the worst,' was the quick, passionate rejoinder. "'Then, Mr. Dinsmore, I will be frank with you. Had you returned one week ago, I think she might have been saved.' possibly, even had you been here yesterday morning, while she was still in possession of her reason. But now I see not one ray of hope. I never knew one so low to recover. He started, as Mr. Dinsmore raised his face again. So pale, so haggard, so grief-stricken had it become in that one moment. Doctor, he said in a hollow, broken voice, save my child, and you may take all I am worth. I cannot live without her. I will do all I can, replied the physician, in a tone of deep compassion. But the great physician alone can save her. We must look to him. Doctor, said Mr. Dinsmore hoarsely, if that child dies, I must go to my grave with the brand of Cain upon me, for I have killed her by my cruelty. And, oh, doctor, she is the very light of my eyes, the joy of my heart. How can I give her up? 
Save her, doctor, and you will be entitled to my everlasting gratitude. Surely, my dear sir, you are reproaching yourself unjustly, said the physician soothingly, replying to the first part of Mr. Dinsmore's remark. I have heard you spoken of as a very fond father, and have formed the same opinion from my own observation, and your little girl's evident affection for you. And I was, but in one respect. I insisted upon obedience, even when my commands came in collision with her conscientious scruples. And she was firm, she had the spirit of a martyr. And I was very severe in my efforts to subdue what I called willfulness and obstinacy, said the distracted father, in a voice often scarcely audible from emotion. I thought I was right, but now I see that I was fearfully wrong. There is life yet, Mr. Dinsmore, remarked the doctor compassionately. And though human skill can do no more, he who raised the dead child of the ruler of the synagogue, and restored the son of the widow of Nain to her arms, can give back your child to your embrace. Let me entreat you to go to him, my dear sir. And now I must return to my patient. I fear it will be necessary for you to keep out of sight until there is some change, as your presence seems to excite her so much. But do not let that distress you, he added kindly. "'as he noticed an expression of the keenest anguish "'sweep over Mr. Dinsmore's features. "'It is a common thing in such cases "'for them to turn away from the very one they love best when in health.' "'Mr. Dinsmore replied only by a convulsive grasp "'of the friendly hand held out to him, "'and hurrying away to his own apartments, "'shut himself up there to give way to his bitter grief and remorse, "'where no human eye could see him. "'For hours he paced backward and forward,' weeping and groaning in such mental agony as he had never known before. His usual fastidious neatness in person and dress was entirely forgotten, and it never once occurred to his recollection that he had been traveling for several days and nights in succession, through heat and dust, without making any change in his clothing. And he was equally unconscious that he had passed many hours without tasting any food. The breakfast bell rang, but he paid no heed to the summons. Then John, his faithful servant, knocked at his door, but was refused admittance, and went sorrowfully back to the kitchen with the waiter of tempting viands he had so carefully prepared, hoping to induce his master to eat. But Horace Dinsmore could not stay away from his child while she yet lived, and though he might not watch by her bed of suffering, nor clasp her little form in his arms, as he longed to do, he must be where he could hear the sound of that voice, so soon, alas, to be hushed in death. He entered the room noiselessly, and took his station in a distant corner, where she could not possibly see him. She was moaning, as if in pain, and the sound went to his very heart. Sinking down upon a seat, he bowed his head upon his hands, and struggled to suppress his emotion, increased tenfold by the words which the next instant fell upon his ear, spoken in his little daughter's own sweet voice. "'Yes, Mamma. yes,' she said. "'I am coming. Take me to Jesus.' Then, in a pitiful wailing tone, "'I'm all alone. There's nobody to love me. "'Oh, Papa, kiss me just once. "'I will be good, but I must love Jesus best and obey Him always.' He rose hastily, as if to go to her, but the doctor shook his head, and he sank into a seat again with a deep groan. "'Oh, Papa!' she shrieked as if in mortal terror. Don't send me there. They will kill me. Oh, Papa, have mercy on your own little daughter. 
It was only by the strongest effort of his will that he could keep his seat. But Adelaide was speaking soothingly to her. Darling, she said, your papa loves you. He will not send you away. And Elsie answered, in her natural tone, But I'm going to mamma. Dear Aunt Adelaide, comfort my poor papa when I am gone. Her father started, and trembled between hope and fear. Surely she was talking rationally now. But, ah, those ominous words! Was she indeed about to leave him and go to her mother? But she was speaking again, in trembling, tearful tones. He wouldn't kiss me. He said he never would till I submit. And, oh, he never breaks his word. Oh, Papa, Papa, will you never love me any more? I love you so very dearly. You'll kiss me when I'm dying, Papa dear, won't you? Mr. Dinsmore could bear no more, but starting up he would have approached the bed, but a warning gesture from the physician prevented him, and he hurried from the room. He met Travilla in the hall. Neither spoke, but Edward wrung his friend's hand convulsively, then hastily turned away to hide his emotion, while Mr. Dinsmore hurried to his room and locked himself in. He did not come down to dinner, and Adelaide, hearing from the anxious John how long he had been without food, began to feel seriously alarmed on his account, and carried up a biscuit and a cup of coffee with her own hands. He opened the door at her earnest solicitation, but only shook his head mournfully, saying that he had no desire for food. She urged him, even with tears in her eyes, but all in vain. He replied that he could not eat. It was impossible. Adelaide had at first felt inclined to reproach him bitterly for his long delay in returning home, but he looked so very wretched, so utterly crushed by the weight of this great sorrow, that she had not the heart to say one reproachful word, but on the contrary longed to comfort him. He begged her to sit down, and give him a few moments' conversation. He told her why he had been so long in answering her summons, and how he had travelled night and day since receiving it. And then he questioned her closely about the whole course of Elsie's sickness, every change in her condition, from first to last, all that had been done for her, and all that she had said and done. Adelaide told him everything, dwelling particularly on the child's restless longing for him, her earnest desire to receive his forgiveness and caress before she died, and her entreaties to her to comfort her dear papa when she was gone. She told him, too, of her last will and testament, and of the little package which was, after her death, to be given to him, along with her dearly loved Bible. He was deeply moved during this recital, sometimes sitting with his head bowed down, hiding his face in his hands, at others rising and pacing the floor, his breast heaving with emotion, and a groan of anguish ever and anon bursting from his overburdened heart, in spite of the mighty effort he was evidently making to control himself. But at last she was done. She had told him all that there was to tell, and for a few moments both sat silent, Adelaide weeping quietly, and he striving in vain to be calm. At length he said, in a husky tone, Sister Adelaide, I can never thank you as you deserve for your kindness to her, my precious child. Oh, brother, replied Adelaide, sobbing, I owe her a debt of gratitude I can never repay. She has been all my comfort in my great sorrow. She has taught me the way to heaven and now she is going before. Then with a burst of uncontrollable grief she exclaimed, Oh, Elsie, Elsie, darling child, how can I give you up? 
Mr. Dinsmore hid his face, and his whole frame shook with emotion. "'My punishment is greater than I can bear,' he exclaimed, in a voice choked with grief. "'Adelaide, do you not despise and hate me for my cruelty to that angel child?' "'My poor brother, I am very sorry for you,' she replied, laying her hand on his arm, while the tears trembled in her eyes. There was a light tap at the door. It was Dr. Barton. "'Mr. Dinsmore,' he said, "'she is begging so piteously for her papa, that perhaps it would be well for you to show yourself again. It is just possible she may recognize you.' Mr. Dinsmore waited for no second bidding, but following the physician with eager haste was the next moment at the bedside. The little girl was moving restlessly about, moaning, "'Oh, Papa, Papa, will you never come?' "'I am here, darling,' he replied, in tones of the tenderest affection. "'I have come back to my little girl.' She turned her head to look at him. "'No, no,' she said, "'I want my Papa.' "'My darling, do you not know me?' he asked in a voice quivering with emotion. "'No, no, you shall not. I will never do it. Never. Oh, make him go away!' she shrieked, clinging to Mrs. Travilla, and glaring at him with a look of the wildest affright. "'He has come to torture me, because I won't pray to the Virgin.' "'It is quite useless,' said the doctor, shaking his head sorrowfully. "'She evidently does not know you.' and the unhappy father turned away, and left the room to shut himself up again, alone, with his agony and remorse. No one saw him again that night, and when the maid came to attend to his room in the morning, she was surprised and alarmed to find that the bed had not been touched. End of chapter 12, part 1